when you have troops in contact fighting for their lives in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and you can't drop a bomb for them without a lawyer sitting in an air-conditioned cubicle <laughs> in, in Doha, that's a problem. That's wrong. Most of you probably have a solid understanding of what the Cold War was, but for my historically averse and my fellow millennial and Gen Z viewers, here's a brief recap. First, you duck, then you cover. The blanket term applies to the 40-year standoff between communist Russia, or the Soviet Union, and the United States. The Americans and Soviets never fought directly, but they engaged in proxy wars, assisted insurgencies, and aggressive military spending to curb each other's global influence. Just 30 years later and the Cold War is essentially back on. In February 2014, Russia tested the waters. As Russian puppet president of Ukraine, Viktor Yunukovych, was ousted by parliament and forced to flee the country, Russia annexed Crimea and began instigating unrest in separatist parts of the country like Donetsk and Luhansk. The message was clear. If Russia couldn't control Ukraine through political co-option and soft power, they'd take it by force. Now the Russians have gone all out with a full-scale invasion of the country, and I'll leave it to the 24-7 news networks to give you the rest on that. On the one hand, I agree with the political strategist John Mearsheimer, who since 2015 has said the US and NATO should have promoted a more neutral, independent Ukraine. Can you imagine 20 years from now a powerful China forming a military alliance with Canada and Mexico and moving Chinese military forces onto Canadian soil? And by implicitly promising the country that the West would have their back in a crisis like this, we've stunted their growth as an independent nation. I also think eastward NATO expansion did provoke Putin somewhat. On the other hand, I look at elements of the right wing in the US, saying Zelensky is a psyop or a deep state construct, or trying to discredit him because he was an entertainer. I look at a lot of these comments and these people and I think they're out to lunch at best and they're sort of being anti-American at worst. Maybe the US did support Zelensky's rise, but he clearly represents a better direction for Ukraine that a majority of the people there want. And he's showing a courage, resilience, and mettle that none of these intellectual American commentators have come close to in their life. But perhaps my biggest takeaway from all of this is that it's impossible to make sense of, especially from the perspective of low-level strategy and military tactics. So to better understand the conflict with all its complexity, I decided decided to hit up my friend Josh Steinman. Josh ran cyber policy for the country under the Trump administration and is always a great resource on all things military and geopolitics. He mentioned that he had just spoken to Eric Prince, who had some very interesting ideas on the situation in Ukraine and more broadly US military strategy in the 21st century. I remembered that name, Eric Prince, but I also knew that Eric had a mixed reputation. US court of law in December prosecuted one of your men for first degree murder. I decided to read his book, Civilian Warriors, and despite some serious fuck-ups like in Nisor Square in Baghdad where a group of his employees killed 17 Iraqi civilians. He was running, then they hit him from the back. Eric was mostly just a patriotic businessman doing what the US military and State Department needed him to do because they couldn't do it themselves. This is done all the time by the US government. A classic example is the Navy SEAL group that killed Osama bin Laden. In fact, Blackwater did a lot of great things. They helped in the wake of the Columbine High School shooting, the USS Cole attack, and even in the aftermath of Katrina. Remarkably, Blackwater even rescued Joe Biden, airlifting him out of a pretty precarious situation in Afghanistan. And Chuck Hagel and John Kerry uh, off the side of a mountain. After Iraq and Afghanistan, 
contractor became a dirty word. But I don't see a very fundamental distinction between the words contractor and veteran. His men fought valiantly for the US and at the behest of the same departments in government employing our other troops. And while I think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were total disasters and wastes of money and US manpower, I think Eric Prince would probably agree. While we shouldn't always support American wars, we should always support our troops. So I thought Eric Prince would be the perfect subject for our new series on American alchemy called The Scapegoat, where we have civil conversations with people that we think have been mistreated by the mainstream media. Without further ado, please enjoy this week's very informative conversation with this week's scapegoat, Eric Prince. The most hated man in America. Where did that come from? You're putting words in my mouth. It's bullshit. You're the one who's politicking. You know, it gathers speed and ultimately one victim must be killed. I don't see it as left or right. I got attacked by all my followers. That's a beast! Shit, man. All right, so let's get right into it. We were talking before the cameras were rolling. Where is Biden, Blinken, Lloyd off right now? Where are they getting things wrong? Uh, this Russia-Ukraine stuff feels really crazy. There seems to be uh, some low-hanging fruit uh, strategically that we're just not, not really taking advantage of. My concern is that they just lack imagination and they lack any kind of historical perspective. Look, I'm not in favor of sending U.S. troops to Ukraine at all. Doesn't need to be that way, but there's lots of ways we can send American capability and know-how to support people, civilians, that are just getting bombed to the point of slaughter. In the days before World War II, before the United States was involved, while Britain was getting pounded, FDR provided them uh, goods through a Lend-Lease program, which included Navy ships, planes, tanks, guns. Another simple way, uh, a, a perfect analogy to today now in Ukraine, uh, China was getting pounded by Japanese bombers. They were bombing, terror bombing the cities Chinese wanted it to stop. They asked the Americans for help. And um, Roosevelt then uh, authorized a, a unit called the Flying Tigers, which was actually a private company. And they flew some old uh, P-40 Warhawk aircraft, which were deemed inferior to the Zeros. But they did very, very well, and they, uh, they largely defended those cities. Elon Musk is almost analogous to the, the Flying Tigers, where you know Ukraine asks for connectivity. Right. And Starlink. Two hours Done. later, you get Starlink, it's, and it's amazing. And it's a cool way for uh, the U.S. There's plausible deniability. It's not the U.S. It's, it's, it's commercial. Him. He has this commercial. And what do we think about? Do we think Zelensky? I mean, I, I, it's clearly a ballsy guy, in my opinion. He's, he's sticking around. He, they offered him a you know hell evacuation. He's didn't take it. Leader fraction тут, голова офісу президента тут, громадяни суспільства тут, всі ми тут захищаємо нашу незалежність. Look, Ukrainian democracy is is mighty imperfect, mm -hmm. but it's but clearly the people believed enough in it, believed in it enough mm -hmm. that they're standing and fighting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The men are staying; they have to stay, but that that they're able to enforce that means that they believe enough in their democracy and their independence as a country that they're willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, man with AK-47 versus a tank. And that is ballsy and that is worthy of, uh, worthy of our support. And you mentioned Russia just throwing manpower at wars in the past, you know, whether it was Napoleon or uh, you know, the Schlieffen plan in World War I or Hitler. Yep. It's always the tragic mistake to go eastwards into, in, into Russia. They just have so many men they can sort of throw at the, the issue. In the age of social media, does it change the dynamic where Russians sort of see their men just 
you know, dying. You know, the troops don't seem to have super high morale. I think uh, Putin believed whatever his generals were telling him that uh, this lightning blitzkrieg attack that they had planned. Uh, you know, they'd spent all this money on reforming the Russian military, mm -hmm. and they were expecting uh, a quick success. And they did not plan logistically or discipline-wise for all those troops to have to stay in slog. In the U.S. budget this year, the U.S. Air Force is retiring more than 200 frontline fighter aircraft, F-16s, F-15s, and A-10s. Of course, F-15, still one of the finest air superiority fighters in the world. F-16, multi-role, air-to-air, air-to-ground. And of course, the A-10, which was actually built from nose to tail, designed to kill Russian tanks. Mm. And all those are being flown to the desert. This year, written off at a value of zero. Why they wouldn't fly them east, mm. provide it to the Ukrainians, either put Ukrainian pilot in there or an American contract pilot or a European contract pilot to let give them the means to defend themselves, to not do that. I provided that concept via a well-placed source uh, back in December already. It would have been enough time to spool it up and I don't believe Putin would have ever rolled into Ukraine with that kind of deterrent force sitting there. And you think about the continuum of statecraft, right? You have diplomats and embassies and international conferences on one end, nuclear triad, aircraft carriers, tank divisions on the other end. And the 80% of the middle is the intelligence world. And to me, the real failure of, of why we have so many of these brush fire wars going, why our opponents continually punch inside of our range to respond, is if our threshold of response is here, they're constantly punching here, 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 and here, right? So they get what they want, they're slicing that salami, but but because the, our, our our so-called smart people in Washington are so locked into a conventional paradigm, they lack ways, clever ways, to decrease the happiness of our opponents. And so our opponents see that the UW approach works against us because our military industrial complex loves to sell big, very expensive, exquisite systems, mm -hmm. but not ones that work practically in, in putting out brush fire wars. Mm -hmm. It was ridiculous when the Pentagon sends B-1 bombers or, or F-22s to Afghanistan to start bombing dudes in pickup trucks mm. with flip-flops. Mm -hmm. It's, come on. Fighting the last war. It's just a, it's a dumb industrialized approach to war. Yeah, exactly. And that feels like it was laid bare in many ways by the, the war on terror. The other thing, if, you, if you're gonna, gonna have any takeaways from, from COVID near Russia or China, it's like you could have some, some asymmetric threat that really causes a lot of harm to the American economy and then as long as you have some story of plausible deniability and entrenched interests within the U.S. to go with your cover story, then you're kind of golden. And so I, that worries me a lot. I, I think that's even very relevant when, when you think about how the U.S. dealt with the Soviet Union, yeah. right? In the 40s and 50s, you got the Red Scare. We realized what the USSR was about. But with China, the globalist wing of America thought if we just trade with them, and we let them into the WTO, the richer they get, they'll become like us. Mm. And that is not the case. But they've managed to put a lot of hooks into a lot of lobbying organizations, uh, universities, institutions, uh, where there's a lot of aspects of CCP money that has a lot of influence on on U.S. society that the USSR never did. And you have this very interesting dynamic with China where they're feigning uh, neutrality, or maybe even more than neutrality, they're feigning condemnation of Russia right now. They go to the Munich Security Conference, you know, Wang Yi, this CCP right. spokesperson will say, 
you know, we respect Ukrainian sovereignty. And then you look at the transcripts of, you know, every, all media in China, and it's all, you know, we, we cannot criticize Russia, and, you know, Putin has a right. There's no uh, coincidence that the Russians signed a huge energy deal with Xi a month before he invaded Ukraine. Totally. Right? So all, they're actually building a pipeline now, which is supposed to be done in 2024, mm -hmm. a bigger one between Russia and China, so that much of that gas that goes to Europe now mm -hmm. will go to China instead. Is this going to be a watershed moment for Europe and the U.S. when it comes to energy independence? Obviously, Russia is still this massive oil exporter. Certainly a wake-up call. I mean, Germany was so blasé about it that they shut down three fully functioning nuclear reactors in December just so they could stay on their green deadline. Yeah. Okay? I bet they're, they're, hopefully they're regretting that now. And there's actually a very uh, prescient video of uh, Trump sort of calling them out for, the, for this pipeline deal. Yeah. Germany is totally controlled by Russia because they were getting from 60 to 70 percent of their energy from Russia and a new pipeline. And you tell me if that's appropriate, because I think it's not. Another great argument for American private property rights. Property rights in America go from your land yeah. all the way to the center of the earth. Most of that's not the case in Europe. And it's the brilliance of our founding fathers to do it that way, because it, it incentivizes the fracking and the other innovative technologies that you just can't get through in Europe because right. there's too much separation of, of ownership and control of all that land. Right. Is there a way in which the bifurcation of external media and internal media, if you're China and you're Russia, like having somebody that can go to the Munich Security Conference and lie and then speak internally and say something entirely different, is there a way in which that's somewhat adaptive in the age of social media? And the reason I ask that is I look at like the right wing in the U.S., and it's very schizophrenic. A lot of them are saying Zelensky's a psyop and we should be completely isolationist and you know, we, you know, NATO expansion is the only reason that this is sort of happening. And I look at that and you know, as a patriot that you know, I want America to continue and win. Um, I see that and it's, it's, it's a little frustrating because I think whatever, however propped up Zelensky was by the US, some information that might you know, create more civil discontent in Russia is good. I'm happy. I'm, I'm pro that misinformation. I don't, yeah. you know, so. Look, during the Cold War, the yeah. U.S. did a pretty good job of the Voice of America and that kind of stuff broadcast into the Soviet Union then to try to bring truth to the propaganda that they have there. We need to do a better job of that today, especially into Russia and especially into China. Mm -hmm. The reason we have a CIA is to do that Title 50 innovation, all that stuff in between diplomacy and war is the Title 50 world. And so it's the ability to, to, you know, you have to be a wildcatter at heart. A wildcatter mm -hmm. is somebody that goes and looks for oil, they drill a few holes, they miss a bunch, but one time, sometimes they, they hit it big. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be willing to fail. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to try three things, and the fourth time, giddy up, yeah. big success. And so that's what, that's what can keep the opponents off balance, and they're never quite sure what, uh, what America's gonna respond to. I mean, look at after 9-11, okay? biggest attack on American soil in history. What did the Pentagon offer? The very conventional approach. Five days after 9-11 happened, they're meeting at Camp David, the Pentagon comes mm -hmm. with bombs, missiles, and a ranger raid, and they wanted to wait six months and do a conventional invasion of Afghanistan via Pakistan with a 45,000 man mechanized unit. And it was the agency that said money, authorities, and in three weeks the flies will be walking on the eyeballs of our enemies, right? Doing a combination of a hybrid war kind of a program with a few special operations guys and intel uh, personnel with air power. We're working with locals. 
and they smashed the Taliban. Smashed them. They were running for their lives for the first six months. And then when the conventional military showed up, by July of 2002, then we went on the awful rinse, repeat cycle of failure for the next 19 and a half years. Mm. What's, your, what's your kind of ex post analysis on Afghanistan? It is a failure of the military leadership to adapt to the realities on the ground. Uh -huh. And they keep trying to run the same playbook using whatever their, their attrition math is to say, well, if we, you know, and that's even, even shown and they, they kept building more and more heavy MRAPs, uh, armored vehicles, because the bad guy can up the, up the poundage of the charge to blow up not just a Hummer, but now a 30-ton truck. That's really bad math. You'll never yeah. outdo that. Instead of saying, hmm, who's actually making those bombs? Oh, those EFPs, the explosive form penetrators, we know where they're coming from in Iran. Find them and kill them. Right. Kill them where they live. Right. You know, kill, kill Qasem Soleimani in 2005 when it starts. Don't wait for Donald Trump to have the, the guts right. to do it in 2020 or 19, whenever he did it. Right. Well, it was weird because I remember Rumsfeld's whole thing was like, we, we have to completely automate the military and uh, you know reduce manpower and and make things more efficient and then it just felt like a bunch of kind of nation building and you know old tactics and so like and none of that sort of happened people is policy yeah. and so you have a you know even in world war ii the leaders that were in charge of the military when we started none of them were in charge when it ended mm -hmm. none of them there mm -hmm. was a massive firing and culling uh, and you know, think about it, you had 14 million men under arms in World War II. We have 1.4 million personnel in the military today. We have the same amount of generals, okay? In an era of smartphones and video conferences and emails and all this wonderful communication, which lets businesses run flatter and faster globally, but we have literally 10 times the overhead per capita. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Yeah. And so that kind of military reform is necessary a top grading right we need a jack welch for a <laughs> right. for a um a sec def afghanistan we went through 32 troop rotations you're sending a 18 to 20 year old kid mm -hmm. probably never been overseas before to a war zone a very foreign war zone with a very foreign culture and now you're expecting him to be productive but they're kind of figuring it out for the first two or three or four months of, of deployment then maybe they're kind of productive in a very conventional way for a couple months. In the last couple months, they're making sure everybody goes home. And then you lift that unit up, send it back to America with no continuity. I mean, what I recommended to Trump as the, as the stay behind, right? Call it a rationalization of, of the effort, was to just go back to what worked in the first six months of the war and make that work, right? Mm -hmm. So by that time we'd built a hundred, almost a hundred battalions of Afghan army. And I recommended attaching a, a mentor team to each of those battalions. Mm. Live with, train with, and fight with. Living on the same base, eating in the same chow hall every day. And because I was sending contractors, veterans, everybody loves to say veterans, they hate the word contractors. Same thing, right? Mm -hmm. A contractor is a veteran who's volunteering to serve again. Too often you're saying words that turn people off. All I do is figure out what words work. And because they're contractors, I can pay them to go back to the same unit in the same valley for years. But our guy will go in for 60 or 90 days, home to see his family for 60 days, but back in, mm. always to the same unit. So there's that absolute continuity. brotherhood of arms continuity. Yeah. 
we're going to take a snapshot of Afghanistan, September 12th, 2001, and then go 20 years later, September 12th, 2021. Is Afghanistan better off now than it was then? I think we gave a lot of Afghans a glimpse of, of what a more free society looks like, and now it's been violently snatched away from them, violently and brutally snatched away from them, and, and we've just left them, just just walked away and so it's uh I, I feel terrible when i wrote an article in the wall street journal for uh for one person to read for trump to read he read it but i said you need a viceroy and that's a that's a controversial term right because it, it, it implies colonialism sure. imperialism but what i wanted to capture is you need one person that's in charge just like you have a in, a in a bankruptcy situation the bankruptcy court appoints a trustee you need one person to solve the debacle that was the effort in Afghanistan, right? But a, 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 a one person in charge would have said, Ma Sinak mm -hmm. opens next week, mm -hmm. and I'm going to employ Taliban to do it. Because if the Taliban is paying $10 a day, I'm going to pay him 12 And I give him three square meals a day, and a pick and a shovel, and we're mining copper. That's a hell of a lot easier to employ them doing that and to bring that into production and to suck them out of the fighting workforce than, than to continue to fighting. And although there is oil and gas in Afghanistan, drilled, proven, and properly cemented when the Soviets left, but yet all the energy was imported from the Med, shipped all the way to Karachi, and then trucked all the way up into Afghanistan, which is why the fully loaded cost of fuel exceeded $250 wow. per gallon. Crazy. When instead, a viceroy or a responsible general would have said, I want you to drill out that field right mm -hmm. now, $20 million would have redrilled the entire field, and $100 million would have put a refinery there, a modular one, to produce all the gas, all the diesel, the jet fuel. It would have powered the entire country, let alone the U.S. presence, saved an enormous amount of money, and that's how you build an economy as well. So that's the, that's the problem of leaving this stuff to the generals. They just don't get it. Mm. Do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? He said war was too important to be left to the generals. General H.R. McMaster, a three-star army officer who really wanted a fourth star, wouldn't do anything counter to the Pentagon's wishes. That's a problem. And, and you know what? The conventional Pentagon can be incompetent. It's bureaucratic and slow. If they get it right once in a while, it's okay. But you have to have some parts of the national security apparatus that work pretty flawlessly every time. When you have troops in contact fighting for their lives in Afghanistan, mm -hmm and you can't drop a bomb for them without a lawyer sitting in an air-conditioned cubicle <laughs> in, in Doha right. at LUD Air Force Base, that's a problem. That's wrong. Yeah. Or if you are going to deploy, if you're going to leave lawyers to that decision-making, mm -hmm. then make their first deployment be with a ground combat unit. Literally a grunt, wearing body armor yeah. every day, and let them live by those decisions. Fire-hosing money, as America does, on yeah. the problems <laughs> in the military, Makes for if it makes for an obese triathlete, not a fit one. Yeah. Well, speaking of fire hosing money, it sounds like you answered the snapshot question pretty directly, which is like maybe marginally better off in that Afghanistan sort of sensed, you know, uh, uh, got a, got a glimpse of freedom. But then if you do a cost benefit analysis, horrible, right? Like for the, trillions of dollars, yeah, it would have been cheaper. Dollars, yeah. It would have been much cheaper for us to just write a check for every Afghan. Yeah. In the country. Yeah. Do stimulus for Afghanistan. That'd exactly. be better than. <laughs> yeah. Oh man.
Blackwater's been in the news a lot lately. You're probably familiar with them. They're the private security contracting firm that works in Iraq protecting diplomats and ambassadors primarily for the State Department. I feel like when I first heard about you, you were so misrepresented in the, in the mainstream media. I was like, who, you know, who's this evil warlord or whatever? And then I, I, I read about you and it, you were just doing what the government asked of you. You were doing it in really sort of effective ways. And it was almost like you were this very necessary, important workaround in all these like life and death situations abroad. And then you kind of got scapegoated <laughs> at the end of it. And so I just let's talk about that whole experience. I was a SEAL for a number of years. SEALs don't have any bases per se of their own, so they have to buy, beg, borrow, and steal. No one had built any kind of industrial sized facility for special operations to use. And so uh, I set out to do it. and. Uh, Found a great team of the kind of guys I used to work with in the SEAL teams, mm -hmm. and um, but you know my my father had died. I knew nothing about land development. I knew nothing about business. I knew nothing about government contracting. But like a good uh, like a good SEAL, we just kind of figured it out. And uh, when 9/11 happened, we went with our customers and supported them and, and did what they needed. Mm -hmm. So from security and training to aviation to, uh, to even to facilities. Conversely, in in the Vietnam War, the anti-war left went after the troops. Mm -hmm. This time they went after contractors. Mm -hmm. And a huge gap of understanding of how the military is and works as a direct result of the um, you know, volunteer military. We have maybe one half of 1% serving in the military, another three or 4% that knows the half percent, leaving 95% of America completely ignorant on all things military. And so yeah. it's very easy for a, a hyperbolic uh, misrepresenting media to distort and to uh, to create their own narratives, and uh, and we were definitely subject and a victim to that. Yeah, we lost forty three of our men in combat mm -hmm. doing that job for the U.S. government, and we did one hundred sixty thousand missions. Yeah, uh, it was just crazy amounts of of flights and missions, and um, you know, on, on the security side, no one under our care was, was ever killed or injured. Yeah, so. I, f I found it pretty remarkable too. I think you like uh, evacuated Biden at one point, right? He was mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, and you guys rescued him. And Chuck Hagel and, Chuck and John Hagel. Kerry yeah. uh, off the side of a mountain. That's right. Yeah. You never got any thanks for that, or no? no <laughs> still waiting for the thank you note. <laughs> um, shifting gears here a little bit. If they're fighting, you know, a hundred year war, and they they can think long term, and they have this centrally coordinated Politburo, and we're sort of subject to these ossified bureaucracies, how do we write a new kind of George Kennan style long telegram where we have a coherent U.S. foreign policy that kind of fights on all these fronts? Look at how the U.S. pivoted in 1980, mm -hmm. right? When you went from a CIA under Stansfield Turner and the Church Committee and vilifying anybody, any of the sharks at CIA where the minnows were left, and you go back to saying, all right, like Reagan said, we're going to go at the Soviet Union. That is our mortal threat, and we're going to address it. The next president has to have that kind of focus. Trump, Trump was the first one that woke up uh, America to the fact that the Chinese, the CCP, was like a neighbor that was moving their fence into our yard six inches a year. Yeah. And he's the first one that said, hey, knock it off. Yeah. Get back on your side of the yard, right? But now the next president has to mobilize the national security apparatus, it has to remind the American people when, when, when Hollywood censors itself to not do anything to offend China, we have to ask, all right, Hollywood, whose side are you on? Yeah. All right, are you just on the side of money or are you on the side of the country that lets you have 
free speech and a Bentley and, and, and all the luxury that you enjoy here so as not to offend the CCP. When Ray Dalio said something that was remotely offensive and to see that guy yammering for minutes about China behaving like, a, uh, like an angry parent or whatever, he was absolutely tap dancing to the tune of the CCP <laughs> and it's pathetic. And so yeah. the next administration has to call out the dichotomies of Hollywood, what they're playing to, what the, the big hedge fund crowd, what, yeah. the, what the Wall Street crowd is playing to, and, and just to say, hey, decide, folks. Which side do you want? I think there's a section of Dalio's book where he says there's one future that involves you know, continued U.S. supremacy. There's another that involves China dominating. I, I choose to hedge my bets. <laughs> just reading this thing, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like, this is crazy. Um, Look, but, I've, spent en- I've spent enough time in China. Yeah. I have biked across China. Yeah, oh, wow. I do when not- you bike across China? Uh, in 2012. That's amazing. Man. With uh, eight of our kids cool. and um, my wife, and uh, it, was, it was quite educational. Yeah. I, uh, I do not want America to become China at all. I do not want us to yeah. adapt any aspects of the CCP society. Yeah. You, you, you touch on all these issues, which is our elites and their institutions are essentially bought off. They're transnational in nature. They're not sort of deeply linked with the U.S. They're deeply linked with like a bunch of global <laughs> governments. Like if, if, if COVID um, revealed any big weakness, it was the fact that we're so de- dependent in terms of our supply chain. And it feels like we haven't done anything on, on that front to really insource. Yeah. I will say, running a contract manufacturing business, uh-huh. it has been a hard go from, geez, when we started, yeah. 97, until like the second year of the Trump administration. Because he was the first one that said, hey, the, the tariffs and, and tariffs on imported goods and, um, and talking up uh, American manufacturing, the phone has been ringing off the hook. There are a lot of companies coming back and then the supply chain disruption from COVID also mm-hmm. reminded companies making stuff close to home is not such a bad idea. So you think it's shifting? Do you guys see real that progress? Part of it, that yeah. part of it has started to shift. Okay. There's a lot of things to go yeah. in terms of regulatory reform and perfecting those supply chains. Yeah. The other massive success that is uh, probably doesn't get as much mention is, um, uh, well, it's now called the Defe- Development Finance Corporation, right? But it used to be called OPIC. Overseas Private Investment Corporation. It's the only part of the U.S. government that actually makes money. Not prints money, it makes it the legitimate way. Interesting. And, and for 42 years, they have written a check at the end of the year back to the Treasury making money. The only one. Why? Well, they do, yeah. they do se- uh, senior debt and political risk insurance for projects that are kind of politically directed. They'd like you to do a, a dam or a power plant or something in some developing country but always private capital at risk first. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have to ask you this question. It's, it's, it's a weird kind of left turn question, but it's been so in the zeitgeist and you're, you're a you know, guy with a strong military background, you understand the equipment that uh, you know, the, the government uses. Uh, what do you think of this whole UFO thing? I, I scratched my head about it as well. <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't discount that uh, opponents maybe have some kind of drone technology or similar, but um, hey, look, the universe is big. And uh, who are we to be so arrogant to think that we're the only ones here? Right. Eric Prince, Josh Steinman, I appreciate you both. This was awesome. This is a wide-ranging, great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.